Hello, my name is Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 42, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. My guest on today's episode is Colin T. Graham, the man behind the Math Chat Twitter hashtag. And we don't just talk about Twitter. We also talk a little bit about origami and other types of paper folding, as well as music. Here we go. For everyone listening, I am joined today on Strongly Connected Components by Colin T. Graham, uh, the man behind uh, Math Chat, I, I think would be fair enough to say. Um, yeah, that's one way of putting it anyway. <laughs> well, I, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that there are, are plenty of other things you have accomplished in your life. I am just not as aware of them as I am of this one thing. <laughs> well, I mean, strangely enough, our first meeting was actually at Maths Jam. Um, rather than, than math chat. And I think there, there are probably lots of little mathematical things going on all around the world. And with math being so global a subject, I think that there's just too many things to find out about and know about everything and everyone and what everyone's doing, which is why this particular podcast is helpful in spreading the news about all of these little quirky events that mathemat- mathematicians get involved in. Well, and, and I want to point out that was completely unsolicited uh, praise there. So uh, it, you have been on this show before, uh, except no one knows about that because I managed to completely uh, corrupt the file while I was trying to edit it. Uh, so uh, what I would like to do is uh, talk about a little bit why you were on at that point, and that was because we were recording a, a podcast to talk about the one-year anniversary of Math Chat. So I was wondering if you could uh, let my listeners know, perhaps, just what this Math Chat thing we keep on referencing actually is. Um, I think anybody who's involved in Twitter and education um, and using Twitter for for professional development purposes will or should be aware of of Math Chat, or at least Twitter hashtags. Um, Anybody who isn't aware of Twitter, isn't actually going to know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, and I, I think what's happening is that a lot of educators are actually um, reinventing Twitter as a social medium um, and using it for kind of like either microblogging, um, sharing links and resources, or having an online live discussion with other similar-minded educators around the world. And that's basically what Math Chat is. Um, initially, it started off as um, a twice-weekly discussion, um, the idea being that one would be held live for the benefit of um, North American time zones, basically. Um, so that happens at midnight GMT on a Friday. And then I just decided, well, let's have a follow-up discussion because sometimes these discussions, a topic happens once and there's no follow-up or people miss out on it. So on a Monday, uh, we have a a second discussion on the same topic at a a Euro-friendly time, and that's 8.30 London time. And it it, it grew from there. I mean, it started off as as the discussions, but within 
a couple of weeks or I suppose by the end of the first month, uh, people were actually using that particular hashtag um, 24-7, sharing resources, asking for help and reaching out to other people around the world. And it's just, it's gone from strength to strength on that basis. Now, what was the, the sort of genesis of, of the MathChat Twitter hashtag in particular? I, I know that it came from something, uh, but w what exactly did it, did it end up coming from? Um, it, to be honest, um, it had already been attempted, I think, towards the end of 2009. There were a couple of discussions that started in the States from, I think, one of the publishing companies um, trying to, just trying to get people talking about maths. Um, and then it, it kind of faded out. I returned from 11 years of teaching in Japan, and I basically wasn't into Twitter at that stage, but I, I went on to Twitter um, as a means of actually um, keeping in touch, maintaining contact with uh, my friends and colleagues in Japan. And I think really uh, from there, I got involved in EdChat, uh, which is basically, again, another discussion that's held on Twitter for um, educators in any kind of field. And somebody happened to mention on, on EdChat, wouldn't it be nice if we had a similar thing just for maths teachers and maths educators? And that's how it started. I think one month after starting on Twitter, I, I put out a poll. We decided on the days and the times. And it, it just went from there in the July. So over a year on now, it's, it's still going. And I suppose we've, uh, in that time, we must have discussed getting on for 60 unique topics. I mean, obviously there's crossover between them all, but, but the whole um, richness of, of, of what mathematics teaching offers as a field has allowed us to have um, some very diverse, stimulating and far-reaching um, conversations in some ways. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, every week there's, there's a different topic. How, how did these topics end up getting chosen for the discussions? In the initial weeks or so, there were some questions that had been asked as, as the hashtag was beginning to develop. I then set up a, a shared Google document and asked people just to, to list anything that they'd like to talk about or, or discuss. Then four um, topics are picked out on a fairly random basis and voted on, again, through a, a Twitter poll, that the top topic then becomes the one for the discussion for the rest of the week. And it became clear about six or seven months later on that what was also needed was some kind of, of practical um, or, or classroom teaching advice. So we introduced the idea about how do I, like how do I teach fractions, how do I use technology in the classroom, how do I um, use number lines effectively and so on. So we had a whole month of just doing how do I discussions and then moved on to an alternation every week between a how do I and a, a more general topic. And I've just introduced the idea now of the, the third Thursday being a topic that's chosen by one of the participants on MathChat. So we've, we've now got topics lined up uh, for the rest of this year and I'll be sending out invitations to others to, to actually just either go back and, and 
choose a topic we've already discussed that they'd like to revisit or to just bring in a topic that's of, of concern to them. So, it's, I mean, it's quite exciting. It's growing. We're, we're getting new people hearing about us and joining in. It's starting to spread out now into the pre-service teaching area, and I think that's where it's going to have a, a bigger impact because people who are training now to become mass teachers are going to have to find ways of, of integrating the new technologies and the new ideas such of, that are coming from social media. And I think um, participation in math chats is, is bound to have some kind of, of effect on, on how they approach doing that in the classroom. I've, I've taken part in math chat a couple of times uh, now, and, and I thoroughly enjoy it. But it, it, one problem I've, I've actually had with it is after about 15 to 20 minutes of it or so, it, it, I mean, it's, it's a chat for math educators. And so after a certain amount of time, it does seem to get a bit jargony, a bit uh, inside baseball as far as the education world uh, tends to get. There's a bunch of words and names that I just uh, don't really have any experience with. Do you have any uh, suggestions for someone like me who uh, is not really a math educator, just interested in math education for perhaps following along with some of the deeper discussions? I think it's not a case of... of of trying to follow everything. I mean, sometimes um, what what people have been exposed to in, in their own training and that and their own background reading and, and I mean, we've got to bear in mind that a lot of the people taking part in this discussion are interested in developing professionally as well. So they may be doing um, reading about things that, that most of the rest of us don't know about or haven't heard of. I think the thing is, just jump in and say, you mentioned um, X, Y, Z. You, you mentioned Vygotsky. What was he about? You know, how does that fit into to mass teaching? I thought Vygotsky was about, you know, psychological development or something. Or throw something out. You know, what, what do you mean by group theory? I've never heard of group theory. What are some of the big names? Um, if, if it looks like it's going too far off the, the general um, topic for, for that math chat discussion, I mean, my role as the moderator is really to try to keep people focused on it, but um, I, there's no problem with throwing out these questions and, and asking. Don't just let things fly past with it. If something sparks your interest, jump in, ask somebody, and, and they'll respond. And if it's not appropriate to respond at that time, then they'll respond after the discussion's finished. And, and usually people do follow up where they can on these things. But I mean, we get homeschoolers taking part as well. We get uh, we get. I know we have parents, mothers, uh, particularly who, who will just just sit back and observe the discussion and what's going on. And a lot of it, as well, is a, is about becoming familiar with how Twitter works, because the the stream can sometimes move past so fast that you miss a, a, a little comment that somebody made. And unless that is actually retweeted or sent out again um, or re responded to in some way, I think sometimes some people may feel that they're they're not getting to take part in the discussion because some of their thoughts are being lost. And again, as the moderator, um, what I try to do is make sure at least that everybody gets greeted when they arrive uh, or when they say something on the tweet stream and then responded to in some way. Uh, but it may, not, it may not be immediately. And sometimes it's better just to, to let it flow past, go back, uh, read through what's happened on, on, on the Twitter stream itself and then interact with people after the discussions happened and follow up at your own pace uh, and virtually all of the math chat participants will engage in some kind of uh, informal discussion or continue the debate. I mean we've, we've been doing it this week, we've been 
talking, I've, I've been interacting with a couple of people about uh, functions and notations and whether f of x equals x squared is causing confusion because it, it doesn't look the same as y equals x squared and why do we have these different notations and, and all the rest of it. So I think there's kind of little sidelines and digressions happen uh, along the way. But the key thing is don't let something shoot past that you have an interest in without actually um, voicing or, or jumping in and asking the question. Because if, if it flies past and you miss it, um, it actually can be very difficult to go back and pick it up later. So jump, jump in. <laughs> Well, one, one thing that you have done in order to help people perhaps uh, deal with something like this is that you have also uh, taken the, the ephemera that is, that is Twitter and archived all of the, the math chats. So uh, how, how would someone, say, go back and look at uh, previous math chats that have happened? We have a separate um, wiki set up. We have two wikis, basically. Um, one, of, one of the wikis sets out what math chat is all about, and the second wiki is just to archive the chats. But you can actually also go on and, and look at beyond the um, math chat discussion itself, because I'm extracting um, that discussion from Twapper Keeper. So Twapper Keeper actually just archives all of the tweets that are sent out with math chat hashtag. And you can kind of sort it. Um, and it archives about 10,000 tweets. Which, I mean, it sounds a lot, but I think now I've actually had to download the full math chart archive twice uh, because since starting it last year, um, we're approaching 30,000 tweets in a year. And I think that, I mean, that's pretty significant for what is effectively a fairly small group of people at the moment. Yeah, I, I do. I, do uh, I want to talk about a few other things, but I have one last question about math chat. And that is, why uh, is the uh, title of the web page for Math Chat labeled Maths Chat? Ah, right. Um, <laughs> two, two reasons for this. And I know why you're asking this, because you do your Math Maths uh, podcast with Peter Rowlett. Um, the, the first thing was that, that Twitter is restricted to 140 characters. And when we started off last year, it actually wasn't possible to do... Um, tweets beyond 140 characters because uh, people started wanting to, 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 to make Twitter um, try and do something which it wasn't originally designed to do and the long tweets came later so by saying math chat instead of maths chat it actually gives us one extra character in the 140 character stream the second reason was that th there was actually already a, a, a wiki um, set up with math chat, which I didn't have access to. So it's kind of my little, my little kind of a global dig. I, I just thought, well, I'll call it maths chat um, on the wiki and math chat on Twitter. But I mean, it, just just for reasons of of logistics more than anything else. Well, thank you for a very serious answer to a question that was uh, meant entirely in jest. I be because of my internet history with uh, hatred of the word maths, which I don't actually hate and I tend to find myself saying more often than not. Hey listeners, it's Samuel. I just needed to pop in here to let all of you know about a couple of changes that are going to be happening here at Strongly Connect Components and at AcmeScience.com as a whole. First, 
All of the feeds for the Acme Science Podcasts are going to be changing, which means you're going to have to update your podcatcher, iTunes, RSS feeds uh, in order to make sure that you get all the new episodes. Now, if you go to acmescience.com, all of the feeds have already been changed on the right sidebar of the site. So you can click on the subscribe and iTunes links there or click on the RSS feeds there if you don't use iTunes. And uh, also, we are now back in the iTunes store uh, with Combinations of Permutations Classic, the new Combinations of Permutations, the new Strongly Connected Components, and Sam and Dan and. Uh, those names will probably be changed back as soon as the old feeds finally expire. Uh, so please make sure to update your subscriptions. I want to make sure that all of you can continue listening to this uh, really cool content that I hope that you enjoy and that I plan on keep on bringing to all of you. So the second bit of news is Combinations of Permutations, which looked like it was dead in the water, is coming back. But it can only come back with the help of the people who listen to the Acme Science podcast. And what I'm asking you to do is to send me in stories. So you can either record a bit and send it into samuelacmescience.com or you can go over to acmescience.com and click on the leave me a voicemail link where you can leave me a story. The stories I'm asking for for this next episode are have you ever had a math class or a math teacher that got you really excited about math, either in a bad way or in a good way. You can either be excited like anger or excited like joy. So if you have a math class or a math teacher story, please record it, send it to me at samuelatacmescience.com or leave me a voicemail over Skype. The username is Acme Science, or you can just head on over to acmescience.com and click on leave me a voicemail. So now let's get back to this interview. So I, w I want to spin off a little bit from, from discussion, uh, how about chatting about math chat, uh, and, and talk about you a little bit uh, more. Now, you are a math uh, teacher. Now, I, I have taught in the past, uh, and I, I felt uh, more that it was thrust upon me instead of it was something that I necessarily really wanted to do. I just It was just something I did while I was in graduate school. So what uh, kind of pulled you into this this world of uh, math education as it is uh, no, that's I mean, my original background before I actually I didn't specifically set out to train as a maths teacher I actually was a statistician and computer programmer for about eight years before I actually retrained as a maths teacher and in those days as my first year of, of programming on computers was done on Hollerith punch cards and the second second year at college we were all very excited because we actually got to use terminals which were directly connected to the mainframe and the third year assembly language programming project was to actually create a bootstrap on those long strips of paper tape which would actually boot up the machine and accept the input of any keyboard character and display it on the screen and that was a third year university computing project so it's kind of like from those kind of early days, I was actually very interested in, in the whole idea of statistics and probability. I think just because I, I understood the concepts behind them. 
And I went into to being a technical programmer and statistician in the petrochemical industry. And I actually found uh, in those days, I was actually, there were two PCs in the company, uh, one of which was used to transfer the payroll from the mainframe computer to the clearing banks through a modem. Um, so it was all, it wasn't, it was actually particularly advanced for its time, but there were only, I think, two IBM PCs in the whole company when I joined. And when I left, I was part of a team of three that was responsible for, sort, for um, maintaining and installing over 120 PCs. And I actually got less and less enjoyment out of actually working with machines and wanted to work with people, which is what I've been doing in the early days. So I, I basically retrained as a maths teacher. And the idea of, I, I, I actually wanted to, to train as a primary school teacher, but it wasn't actually financially viable for me to do that, to actually go in and study full time as a primary school teacher. I actually couldn't have afforded to live. And it was because the government was offering um, additional bursaries for people who were going to teach mathematics or physics because there was a shortage of these teachers in secondary schools that I trained as a math mathematics teacher in secondary. And as it turned out, I mean, I, I moved from, from teaching mathematics because my first maths teaching jobs were not just teaching for the high, the kind of like what you would call junior high school and high school level qualifications. But I was also involved in teaching basic numeracy skills to ESOL students, that, that refugees who, who were, or people who who'd come to the UK who wanted to stay in the UK, but, but didn't have the basic number skills. And that's where I got involved in um, teaching English as a foreign language as well. And I think a lot of what I come to, to, to feel is a lot of the reason that I actually understood the mathematics was not just because I was kind of like naturally gifted. I think it happened to be the pe people who were teaching me key concepts at certain times were using the type of language that I understood, which allowed me to actually grasp the concepts more easily. And I, I, I'm very much um, aware and interested in the idea of the impact that the language that you use to teach mathematics has on how well people actually understand what it is you're talking about. And that, I mean, that ties in with what you were saying earlier about the jargon and the, the, the inside educator stuff. As far as possible, although I may know the terms myself, I actually ask people to explain them or give a link or, or define stuff. So I kind of try and play the role of Socrates in, in these kinds of discussions. Because I think it's actually important to tease out exactly what it is you're trying to say. And you can be very precise with English. It's, it's one of the, the few languages in the world when, when you can say exactly what you mean but you need to be very careful um, and use the language very carefully to make sure that, that what you're saying is actually what you mean. And I think the link between language and mathematics is, is so strong for me that I, I, I can't see myself doing anything else now other than trying to get people to understand both. Now, I, the first time I met you, as you mentioned, was at Math Jam, which is coming up what is it, November uh, 12th and 13th, that's what it is. Yeah. And uh, if I remember correctly, there's five rooms. If you want to go, that's mathjam.co.uk or .com. I can't remember which one. I think both work. Uh, 
<laughs> and, uh, and so that's why I first said, and you were there and you were talking about, if I'm remembering this correctly, other than uh, when you were questioning my hatred of Newton, uh, you were talking about uh, origami, is that correct? That's right, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my, one of my overriding passions. I kind of started doing origami seriously, I suppose, when I was seven. Um, and now I'm actually looking, I'm getting to the stage where I can actually try and put together masterclasses based on, uh, uh, for, for mathematics teaching around, not just um, origami, but I think the whole concept of, of working with paper, paper engineering, um, very basic tools that you, you could probably cover most of a junior high school maths curriculum in terms of its content through some kind of, of work with paper, pa paper craft, which for me is, is actually quite exciting because I think we're quite well off in terms of the Western world, in terms of our, our levels of technology, but there are so many developing countries where they don't necessarily have access even to to, to basic tools. and, and Paper and, and scissors and, or paper and something to cut it with seems to be a technology that is available in most cultures. And I think the more we can do to actually work from a, a kind of, of hands-on, practically-based type of work that involves mathematics, that involves imagination, that involves design, that involves creativity, where the student can go away with something that they have physically made themselves and discovered some of the, the, the basic concepts around it is, is, has got to be a lot more exciting than just sitting down and playing about with the calculator or typing away on a keyboard, as far as I'm concerned anyway. So that's my, my big goal, to rule the world of mathematics through paper folding and paper engineering. Well, how, how can you take something like origami, like paper folding, uh, and use it to actually teach? Um... <clears throat> I, I understand I, it's a very visual thing, but... Uh, not so much that, but I mean, if, if you think about... You, you can think about the, the idea of building up basic axioms. I mean, there are some very fundamental mathematical-type axioms that are related to paper folding. For example, that, that when, any time you, you make a crease in a piece of paper, um, it's mathematically equivalent to doing a reflection. So that... This idea of, of if you wanted to, to draw a di draw an origami diagram so that let's say you've designed a particular fold or model and you want to transmit that to other people, yeah, you could make a video of you doing it, you could take photographs of, of the page, or you could perhaps use a drawing package. And um, if you're thinking about, for example, folding in half, like corner to corner or side to side, um, those might be quite easy to do. You can keep folding in half. Um, to bisect angles, so like you're working with 45 degrees, 22 and a half degrees, and so on. But suppose you wanted to trisect an angle, you can actually trisect any angle using the origami fundamental axioms, which you can't do using traditional ruler and compass construction methods. Any angle, not so. You've got ties in then with with geometry. In origami, you can actually fold a regular heptagon. It's very complex. It's a 29-step procedure, but you can actually fold the, the outlined crease of a regular heptagon, and it's impossible to construct a regular heptagon using compass and ruler again. So there are certain things that you can do mathematically in origami which are not possible 
in other fields of mathematics. And we're talking here about university level mathematics. But for, for the lower level, if you're working with square numbers, for example, can you fold a square of paper into each of the square numbers? So obviously folding a square into four is trivial because you're just folding in half two ways. Uh, folding it into eight is trivial because you're folding in half again. Um, but how about folding into thirds or fifths? Um, so you set that challenge to, 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 to kids and how they're going to come up with it. And then you can show them a method. And the method is actually it's quite an easy little trick. But it's not a trick because it works geometrically and it's using Euclid's method for, for dividing any line segment into n equal parts. And there's a lot of, of concept work that can be done just, just through the paper folding and asking and, and remembering, remembering instructions, following diagrams, following sequence, doing things in, in the correct order that then allow a kind of an experiential basis that later on when you start talking about some of these more abstract geometrical or algebraic procedures or, or concepts or ideas, they actually make sense because you've had some kind of physical hands-on experience of just folding, just folding a piece of paper um, and using the marks on that piece of paper to create new creases and suddenly start doing things that, that you might have thought impossible without the aid of some kind of measuring device such as a protractor or a ruler. I, now, there's uh, one last uh, topic I'd like to broach with you, and that's uh, on your website, you uh, list music as one of your big interests. I wonder uh, if you have uh, ever you know, tied together uh, music and mathematics with anything that you do. Yes, is the, is the short answer. Um, in, in terms of, of composition, I was and still am very interested in, in what's known as the serialism, um, or do, completely dodecaphonic uh, music. Now, of course, this is jargon now, uh, but basically it, it's different from the kind of what the everyday person might think as, as no, normal, tuneful music. But there's, there's actually quite a lot of uh, very advanced, high-level mathematics that's been used by 20th century, I was going to say contemporary musicians, but <laughs> three or four of them are in their 80s and, and the rest of them have, have died now. Um, so I mean, we were talking about work that was going on in the 1960s uh, where the musical structure of something and the, the distance in, in between two particular musical pitches then it transfers into a time element and the dynamic and, and all the rest of it. And in fact, there's a very uh, well-known composer called Yanis Xenakis. He actually was a statistician um, like me. I tend to consider myself a statistician rather than a, a mathematician, if I'm totally honest. But he was also um, an architect who studied under Le Corbusier, and he was responsible for designing the um, Philips Pavilion for the, the World Expo in 1959. And he actually used these ideas of, of basically hyperparabolic structures um, and translated the, the straight line tangents that you can put into creating th this kind of parabolic structure as string glissandos in an orchestral score. So he basically started with something which was fundamentally mathematical to create an architectural object and the shape of that architectural object um, interacted with his idea of, of using glissandos in, in music and, and uh, I mean when you listen to it, it doesn't actually 
sound like a hyperbolic paraboloid, but the idea of actually using um, some kind of mathematical procedure to create an artwork, and by the same token, using artworks to actually investigate mathematics in some way, um, to me is, is, is not is not unusual, not something I shy away from, but it's actually a very difficult area to work in artistically um, because it's actually it, it's quite difficult to listen to, um, both in terms of, of levels of dissonance and the, the new way of listening to music that you actually have to be uh, a lot more open-minded um, about approaching it. So, um, yes, I have used mass in music, but I, I, I see kind of music as being my uh, another outlet for my um, artistic inclinations and another way of, of creating. I would just believe in being creative and imaginative as far as possible in whatever you're doing. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Colin, I want to thank you so much for coming on to Strongly Connected Components. You're welcome, and thank you, thank you for helping to republish Besides math chat. Oh, yes, of course. It's, I, I enjoy popping in from time to time, and I hope that uh, all of my listeners go listen to it as well. Yeah, just make sure you don't corrupt me again this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to save the file in a couple of places. That way everyone gets to hear it this time. Okay, look forward to seeing you again sometime. Yeah. Bye, Colin. Bye. So that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. To find out more about Colin T. Graham, head on over to acmescience.com, where you will, of course, find a blog post about this episode. Also, make sure to update your podcast subscriptions. Go over to acmescience.com, click on the links on the right side of the page. I don't want anyone to miss out on any of these great interviews. The podcast music is from... SP12 and Hard in Firm. And this podcast is, as always, a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike licensed podcast. So, well, you know. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you come back for the next episode of Strongly Connected Components. Goodbye. <laughs>